Greetings, everybody out there in dreamland. Namaste and shalom. Iron sharpens iron and a friend sharpens a friend. You are listening to the Beyond Top Secret Texan. I am the Beyond Top Secret Texan. Broadcasting to you from the coast with the most, the Gulf Coast, the third coast of Texas. The darkest truths from the darkest web need to be told. And you must listen to the Beyond Top Secret Texan. Greetings everybody out there in dreamland. Namaste and shalom. Iron sharpens iron and a friend sharpens a friend. Thank you all very much for tuning in to another episode of the Beyond Top Secret Texan. We are broadcasting from the third coast, the coast with the most, the Gulf Coast of Texas, and it is our pride and privilege to be doing so. So thank you all very much. Each and every one of you, listeners new and old alike. Today we're going to be featuring the full presentation that survives from the 1977 presentation in Metz, France of Philip K. Dick explaining the veracity of his belief in alternate worlds alternate timelines and that these very same experiences were the inspiration for his novels specifically Man in a High Castle and Flow My Tears the Policeman Said that the inspiration was not pure fantasy or imagination but rather real memories maintained from a lateral movement of consciousness from one life to another. This would be the beginning of his Vallis understanding, which I will also include in this presentation. This is a very obscure and increasingly obscure counterculture icon and one of the greatest American authors and intellectuals ever to live. These are the very same concepts that I currently exist and deal with in my efforts at creating this podcast and expressing those very same fragmented memories of subliminal memories maintained in the subconscious shared between each iteration of self.
So without further ado, I bring you the full Philip K. Dick speech that survives from Metz, France in 1977. Thank you. Instead, they do a very clever thing. When their employer is not looking, 
The servants cunningly alter the picture already on the wall. They paint out a tree here. They paint in a little girl there. They add this. They obliterate that. They make the same painting different and in a sense new, but as I'm sure you can see, not new in the sense of replacing it. The employer enters his living room after dinner, seats himself facing the fireplace, and contemplates what should be, according to his expectations, a new picture. What does he see? It certainly isn't what he saw previously, but also it isn't somehow, and here we must become very sympathetic with this perhaps somewhat stupid man, because we can virtually see his brain circuits striving to understand. His brain circuits are saying, yes, it is a new picture. It is not the same one as yesterday. But also, it is the same one, I think. I feel on a very deep, intuitive basis. I feel that somehow I've seen it before. I seem to remember a tree, though, and there is no tree. Now, perhaps if we extrapolate from this man's perceptual, mentational confusion, to the theoretical point I was making about lateral change, you can get a better idea of what I mean. I mean, perhaps you can, to at least a degree, see that although what I'm talking about may not exist, my concept may be fictional, it could exist. It is not intellectually self-contradictory. Contemplating this possibility of a lateral arrangement of worlds a plurality of overlapping Earths along whose linking axis a person can somehow move, can travel in a mysterious way from worse to fair to good to excellent. Contemplating this in theological terms, perhaps we could say that herewith we suddenly decipher the elliptical utterances which Christ expressed regarding the kingdom of God, specifically where it is located. He seems to have given contradictory and puzzling answers. But suppose, just suppose for an instant, that the cause of the perplexity lay not in any desire on his part to baffle or to hide, but in the inadequacy of the question. My kingdom is not of this world, he is reported to have said. The kingdom is within you, or possibly it is among you. I put before you now the notion, which I personally find exciting, that he may have had in mind that which I speak of as the lateral axis of overlapping realms which contain among them a spectrum of aspects ranging from the unspeakably malignant to the beautiful. And Christ was saying over and over again that there really are many objective realms somehow related and somehow bridgeable by living, not dead men, and that the most wondrous of these worlds was a just kingdom in which either he himself or God himself or both of them ruled. And he did not merely speak of a variety of ways of subjectively viewing one world. The kingdom was and is an actual different place at the opposite end of continua, starting with slavery and utter pain. It was his mission to teach his disciples the secret of crossing along this orthogonal path. He did not merely report what lay there. He taught the method of getting there. But, tragically, the secret was lost. The enemy, the Roman authority, crushed it, and so we do not have it. But perhaps we can refine it, since we know that such a secret exists. Kingdom is ever to be established here on earth, or whether it is a place or state we go to after death. I'm sure I don't have to tell you that this issue has been a fundamental one and an unresolved one throughout the history of Christianity. Christ and St. Paul both seem to say emphatically that an actual breaking through into time 
That is specifically what they say, a breaking through into time, into our world, by the host of God, will unexpectedly occur. Thereupon, after some exciting drama, a thousand-year paradise, a rightful kingdom will be established, at least for those who have done their homework and chores and generally paid attention, have not gone to sleep, as one parable puts it. We are enjoined repeatedly in the New Testament to be vigilant, that for the Christian it is always day. There is always light by which he can see this event when it comes. See this event. Does that imply that many persons who are somehow asleep or blind or not vigilant, they will not see it even though it occurs? Consider the significance which can be assigned to these notions. The kingdom will come here unexpectedly. This is always stressed. The rightful faithful shall see it because for them it is always daytime. But for the others, what seems expressed here is the paradoxical but enthralling thought that, and hear this and ponder, the kingdom were it established here would not be visible to those outside it. I offer the idea that in more modern terms, what is meant that some of us will travel laterally to that better world and some will not. They will remain stuck along the lateral axis, which means that for them the kingdom did not come, not in their alternative world. And yet, meantime, it did come in ours. So it comes, and yet it does not come. Amazing. If you have followed my conjectures about the overlapping of these alternate worlds, and you sense as I do the possibility that if there are three or four or two, there may be 30 or 3,000 of them, and that some of us live in this one, others of us in another one, others in others, and that events on one track cannot be perceived by persons not in that track. Well, let me say what I want to say and be done with it. I think I once experienced a track in which the Savior returned, but I experienced it just briefly. I am not there now. I am not sure I ever was. Certainly I may never be again. I grieve for that loss, but loss it is. Somehow I moved laterally, but then fell back, and then it was gone. A vanished mountain and a stream, the sound of bells, and all gone now for me, entirely gone. I, in my stories and novels, often write about counterfeit worlds, semi-real worlds, as well as deranged private worlds, inhabited often by just one person, while meantime the other characters either remain in their own worlds throughout or are somehow drawn into one of the peculiar ones. This theme occurs in the corpus of my 27 years of writing. At no time did I have a theoretical or conscious explanation for my preoccupation with these chloroform pseudo-worlds, but now I think I understand. What I was sensing was the manifold of partially actualized realities lying tangent to what evidently is the most actualized one, the one which the majority of us by consensus gentium agree on. Although originally I presumed that the differences between these worlds was caused entirely by the subjectivity of the various human viewpoints, it did not take me long to open the question as to whether it might not be more than that, that in fact plural realities did exist superimposed onto one another by so many film transparencies. What I still do not grasp, however, is how one reality out of the many becomes actualized in contradistinction to the others. Perhaps none does, 
or perhaps again it hangs on an agreement in viewpoint by a sufficiency of people. More likely the matrix world, the one with the true core of being, is determined by the programmer. He or it articulates, prints out, so to speak, the matrix choice and fuses it with actual substance. The core or essence of reality, that which receives or attains it, and to what degree, that is within the purview of the program. This selection and reselection is part of general creativity, a world building, which seems to be it or his task. A problem, perhaps, which he or it is running, which is to say, in the process of solving as a computer with variables along the linear time axis of our universe, thereby generating branched off lateral worlds. I have the impression that the metaphor of the chessboard is especially useful in evaluating how this can be done. In fact, must be. Across from the programmer-reprogrammer sits a counter-entity, whom Joseph Campbell calls the dark counterplayer. God, the programmer-reprogrammer, is not making his moves of improvement against inert matter. He is dealing with a cunning opponent. Let us say that on the game board, our universe in space-time, the dark counterplayer makes a move. He sets up a reality situation of immutable cause and effect. But the programmer-reprogrammer has already laid down his response. It has already happened, these moves on his part. The printout, which we undergo as historic events, passes through stages of a dialectical interaction, thesis and antithesis, as the forces of the two players mingle. Evidently, some syntheses fall to the dark counterplayer. And yet they do not, by virtue of the fact that in advance, our great advocate selected variables, the alternation of which brings final victory to him. In winning each sequence in turn, he claims some of us, we who participate in the sequence. This is why instinctively people pray, libera me domine, which decodes to mean extricate me, programmer, as you achieve one victory after another. Include me in that triumph. Move me along the lateral axis so that I am not left out. Sense as being left out means not, nothing other than remaining under the jurisdiction of or falling prey to the malignant power. But that malignant power for all its guile has already lost even as it wins. For in some way the counterplayer is blind and so the programmer-reprogrammer possesses an advantage. I submit to you that such alterations, the creation or selection of such so-called alternative presence is continually taking place. The very fact that we can conceptually deal with this notion, that is, entertain it as an idea, is the first step in discerning such processes themselves. But I doubt if we will ever be able in any real fashion to demonstrate to scientifically prove that such lateral change processes do occur. Probably all we would have to go on would be vestiges of memory, fleeting impressions, dreams, nebulous intuitions that somehow things had been different in some way, and not, and not long ago, but now. We might reflexively reach for a light switch in the bathroom only to discover that it was, always had been, in another place entirely. We might reach for the air vent in our car 
so there was no air vent. A reflex left over from a previous presence, still active at a subcortical level. We might dream of people in places we had never seen as vividly as if we had seen them and actually known them. But we would not know what to make of this, assuming we took time to ponder it at all. One very pronounced impression would probably occur to us, to many of us, again and again, and always without explanation. The acute, absolute sensation that we had done once before, what we were just about to do now, that we, so to speak, lived in a particular moment or situation previously. But in what sense could it be called previously, since only the present, not the past, was evidently involved? We would have the overwhelming impression that we were reliving the present, déjà vu, perhaps in precisely the same way, hearing the same words, saying the same words, I submit that these impressions are valid and significant. And I will even say this, such an impression is a clue that in some past time point, a variable was changed, reprogrammed as it were, and that because of this, an alternative world branched off, became actualized instead of the prior one, and that in fact, in literal fact, we are once more living this particular segment of linear time. A breaching, a tinkering, a change had been made, but not in our present, had been made in our past. Evidently, such an alteration would have a peculiar effect on those persons involved. They would, so to speak, be moved back one square or several squares on the board game, which constitutes our reality. Conceivably, this could happen any number of times, affecting any number of people, as alternative variables were reprogrammed. We would have to live out each reprogramming along the subsequent linear time axis, but to the programmer, whom we call God, to him the results of the programming would be apparent at once. We are within time, and he is not. I wish to add live. We are living in a computer-programmed reality, and the only clue we have to it is when some variable is changed and some alteration in our reality occurs. This, too, might account for the sensation people get of having lived past lives. They may well have, but not in the past. Previous lives, rather, in the present in perhaps an unending repeated and repeated present, like a great clock dial in which grand clock hands sweep out the same circumference forever, with all of us carried along unknowingly, yet dimly suspecting. Since the resolution of every encounter of thesis and antithesis between the dark counterplayer and the divine programmer, a new synthesis is struck off, and since it is possible that each time this happens, a lateral world may be generated, and since I conceive that each synthesis or resolution is in some degree a victory by the programmer, each struck-off world in sequence must be an improvement upon not just the prior one, but an improvement upon all the latent or merely possible outcomes. It is a better world, but in no sense perfect, which is to say final. It is merely an improved stage within a process. What I envision clearly is that the programmer is perpetually using the antecedent universe as a gigantic stockpile for each new synthesis. The antecedent universe then possessing the aspect of chaos, or anomie, 
in relation to an emerging new cosmos. Therefore, the endless process of sequential struck-off alternate worlds emerging and being infused with actualization is negatropic in some way that we cannot see. What we need at this point is to locate, to bring forth as evidence, someone who has managed somehow, it doesn't matter how, to retain memories of a different present, latent alternate world impressions, different in some significant way from this, the one which is at this stage actualized. According to my theoretical view, it would almost certainly be memories of a worse world than this. For it is not reasonable that God the programmer and reprogrammer would substitute a worse world in terms of freedom or beauty or love or order or healthiness by any standard which we know. When a mechanic works on your malfunctioning car, he does not damage it further. When a writer creates a second draft of a novel, he does not debase it further, but strives to improve it. I suppose it could be argued in a strictly theoretical way that God might be evil or insane and would in fact substitute a worse world for a better one. But frankly, I cannot take that idea seriously. Let us pass that over. So let us ask, does any one of us remember in any dim fashion a worse Earth circa 1977 than this? Have our young men seen visions and our old men dreamed dreams? Nightmare dreams specifically about a world of enslavement and evil, of prisons and jailers and ubiquitous police. I have. I wrote out these dreams in novel after novel, story after story, to name two in which this prior ugly present obtained most clearly. I cite The Man in the High Castle and my 1974 novel about the U.S. as a police state called Flow My Tears, The Policeman Said. I'm going to be very candid with you. I wrote both novels based on fragmentary residual memories of such a horrid slave state world, or perhaps the term world is the wrong one, and I should say United States, since in both novels I was writing about my own country. I can even tell you what caused me to remember. In late February of 1974, I was given sodium pentothal for the extraction of impacted wisdom teeth. Later that day, back home again, but still deeply under the influence of the sodium pentothal, I had a short, acute flash of recovered memory. In one instant, I caught it all, but immediately rejected it. Rejected it, however, with the realization that what I had retrieved in the way of buried memories was authentic. Then, in mid-March, month later, the total body of memories, intact and entire, began to return. You are free to believe me or to disbelieve, but please take my word on it that I am not joking. This is very serious, a matter of importance. I am sure that at the very least you will agree that for me even to claim this is in itself amazing. People claim to remember past lives. I claim to remember a different, very different present life. I know of no one who has ever made this claim before, but I rather suspect that my experience is not unique. What perhaps is unique is the fact that I am willing to talk about it. If you have followed me this far, I would like you to be kind enough to, to go a little further with me. I would like to share with you something I knew that is retrieved along with the blocked off memories. In March of 1974, the reprogrammed variables tinkered with back at some earlier date, probably in the late 40s, 
In March of 1974, the payoff, the results, mm -hmm. of at least one and possibly more of the reprogrammed variables lying along the linear timeline of our past set in. What happened between March and August of 1974 was the result of at least one reprogrammed variable laid down perhaps 30 years before, setting into motion a thread of change which culminated in what I am sure you will admit was a spectacularly important and unique historical event, the forced removal from office of the President of the United States, Richard Nixon, as well as all those associated with him. In the alternative world which I remember, the civil rights movements, the anti-war movements of the 60s had failed. And evidently, in the mid-70s, Nixon was not removed from power. That which opposed him, if anything indeed existed that did, that did oppose him or could oppose him, was inadequate. Therefore, one or more factors tending toward that destruction of the entrenched tyrannical power had retroactively to us come to be introduced. The scales, 30 years later, in 19... had been 2,000 years ago at its inception. It was regarded as subversive and revolutionary, and let me add, this appraisal by the police authorities was correct. It took me almost two weeks after the return of my memories of my life in Track A to rid myself of the overpowering impression that all references to Christ, all sacerdotal acts, had to be veiled in absolute secrecy. But historically, this fits the pattern of a fascist takeover, especially those along Nazi lines. I also would like to tell you, if, if you have followed me this far, to accept my statement about my other memories under the sodium pentothal, which returned. That world was a prison. It was dreadful. We overthrew it, just as we overthrew the Nixon tyranny. But it was far more cruel, incredibly so, and there was a great battle and loss of life. It was in February of 1974 that my blocked-off memories of Track A returned, and it was in February of 1974 that my novel, Slow My Tears, the Policeman Said, was released finally after two, two years' delay. It was almost as if the release of the novel, which had been delayed so long, meant that in a certain sense it was all right for me to remember. That is to remember that the book was not fiction. The book was based on subliminal memories which I had of such a world. But perhaps until the book was actually released, it was better that I did not remember. Why that would be, I do not know. But I have the impression that the memories were not to come to the surface until the material had been published very sincerely on the author's part as what he believed to be fiction. Perhaps had I known, I would have been too frightened to write the novel. As it was, I was very frightened anyway. There was something about the novel that frightened me a great deal. Or perhaps I would have just shot off my mouth and told everybody and somehow interfered with the effectiveness of that book and such other books of mine as Man in the High Castle, which were also based on residual memories. The effectiveness of those novels might have been impaired. I do not even claim there was an intended effectiveness. Perhaps there was none at all. But if there was one, and I repeat the word if emphatically, it was almost certainly to stir subliminal memories in readers back to dim life, not a conscious life, not an entering consciousness as in my own case, 
but to recall to them on a deep and profound, albeit unconscious level, what a police tyranny is like and how vital it is now or then, at any time, along any time track, in any world, to defeat it. In March of 1974, the really crucial moves to depose Nixon were beginning. In August, five months later, they proved successful. <coughs> it seems to me that in many ways, ideas have a life of their own. They appear to seize on people and make use of them. The idea which seized me 27 years ago and never let go of me is this. Any society in which people meddle in other people's business is not a good society, and a state in which the government, quote, knows more about you than you know about yourself, as it is expressed in my novel, Flow My Tears, the policeman said, is a state which must be overthrown. It may be a theocracy, a fascist corporate state, or reactionary monopolistic capitalism or centralistic socialism. That aspect does not matter. And I am saying not merely it can happen here, meaning the United States, but rather it did happen here, meaning the United States. I remember I was one of the secret Christians who fought it and at least to some extent helped overthrow it. And I am very proud of that, proud of myself in time track A. When, you, when I use the word Christian there, I do not mean Christians as they are now. I mean Christians as they were, say, 2,000 years ago, enemies of the powerful empire. When I saw Star Wars this morning, I thought to myself, deja vu. There is, unfortunately, for me, a somber intimation which accompanies my pride in the work that I did in that alternate earth. I think that in that previous world, I did not live past March of 1974. In this track here, which I will call track B, we fought a much lighter tyranny, a far stupider one. Or perhaps we had assistance. The anterior reprogramming of one or more historical variables came to our rescue. Sometimes I think, and this is, of course, pure speculation, a happy fantasy of my soul, that because of what we accomplished there, or anyhow attempted to, and very bravely, we who were directly involved were allowed to live on here, past the terminal point which brought us down in that other worse world. It is a sort of miraculous kindness. This gracious gift serves to delineate for us, for me at least, some aspects of the program. It causes me to comprehend him after a fashion. I think we cannot know what he is, but we can experience his functioning, and so can ask, what does he resemble? Not what is he, but rather, what is he like? First and foremost, he controls the objects, processes, and events in our space-time world. This is, for us, the primary aspect, although intrinsically he may possess aspects of greater magnitude but of less applicability to us. I have spoken of myself as a reprogrammed variable, and I have spoken of him as the programmer and reprogrammer. During a short period of time in March of 1974, at the moment in which I was re-synthesized, I was aware perceptually, which is to say aware in an external way of his presence. At that time, I had no idea what I was seeing. 
It resembled nothing that I had ever heard described. It resembled plasmic energy. It had colors. It moved fast. It collected and then dispersed. But what it was, what he was, I am not sure even now. Except I can tell you that he had simulated normal objects and their processes so as to copy them and in such an artful way as to make himself invisible within them. As the Vedantas put it, he is the fire within the flint, the razor within the razor case. Later research showed me that in terms of group cultural experience, the name Brahman has been given to this omnipresent, imminent entity. One thing I really want you to know, I am aware that the claims I am making, claims of having retrieved buried memories of an ultimate present and who have perceived the agency responsible for arranging that alternation, these claims can neither be proved nor can they be even made to sound rational in the usual sense of the word. It has taken me over three years to reach the point where I am willing to tell anyone but my closest friends about my experience beginning back at the vernal equinox of 1974. One of the reasons motivating me to speak about it publicly at last, to openly make this claim, is a recent encounter I have undergone, which, by the way, bears a strange resemblance to Hawthorne Abinson's experience in my novel, The Man in the High Castle with the woman Juliana Frank. Juliana read Abinson's book about a world in which Germany and Japan and Italy now, this is a little difficult if you haven't read the book, but he wrote a novel in which Germany, Italy, and Japan lost World War II, and he was living in a world in which they had won World War II. Juliana read Robinson's book about a world which the Axis lost, and she felt she should tell him what she comprehended about the book. In other words, that his novel was true. Now, this final scene in Man in the High Castle has been the source for a similar scene in my later story, Faith of Our Fathers, where the girl Tanya Lee shows up and acquaints the protagonist with the actual reality situation, which is to say that much of his world is delusional and purposefully so. In other words, it's a common theme in my writing that a dark-haired girl shows up at the door of the protagonist and tells him that his world is delusional, that there's something false about it. Now, in Man in the High Castle, the situation is ironically reversed. The girl that comes to the door tells an author that his book of fiction is true. <clears throat> For several years, I've had the feeling, a growing feeling, that one day a woman who would be a complete stranger to me would contact me and tell me that she had some information to impart to me, and then she would appear at my door, just as Juliana appeared at Hawthorne Robinson's door, and then forthwith, in the gravest possible way, she would tell me exactly what Juliana told Robinson, and that is that my book, like his, was in a certain real, literal, and physical sense, not fiction, but the truth. Well, this did finally happen to me. I even knew that her hair would be black. I had an actual complete sense of what she would look like and what she would say. Door, 
And I'm speaking of a woman who had systematically read every single novel of mine, which is more than 30 novels, as well as many of my stories. She did appear. She was a total stranger. And she did inform me of this fact, that some of my fictional works were in a literal sense true. Now, I had posited in 1974, when my memories of this alternate world came back, that if these memories were authentic, that it was only a matter of time before a contact, a cautious guarded probing by someone would occur, initiated by a person who read my books and for one reason or another deduced the actual situation. I mean, knew what the significant information was which the books and stories carried. Now, this woman knew from my novels and stories which world I had experienced, which of the many. What she could not determine until I told her was that in February of 1975, I had passed across into a third alternative present, the third one, track C, we will call it. And this was a garden or park of peace and beauty, a world superior to ours, rising into existence. To her, of three rather than two worlds, the black iron prison world, which had been, our intermediate world in which oppression and war exist but have to a great degree been cast down, and then a third alternative world which someday, when the correct variables in our past have been reprogrammed, will materialize as a superimposition onto this one, and within which, as we awaken to it, we shall suppose that we have always lived there. The memory of this intermediate one, like that of the black iron prison world, eradicated mercifully from our memories. The best that I can really do at this point, after having had these experiences and written these novels, is to play the role of prophet, of ancient prophets and such oracles as the Sibyl at Delphi, and to talk of a wonderful garden world, much like that which once our ancestors are said to have inhabited. In fact, I sometimes imagine it to be exactly that same world restored, as if a false trajectory of our world will eventually be fully corrected, and once more we will be where once many thousands of years ago we lived and were happy. During the brief time I walked about in that garden world, I had the strong impression that it was our legitimate home, which somehow we had lost. The time I spent there was short, about six hours of real elapsed time, but I remember it well. In the novel I wrote with Roger Zelazny, Deus Erie, I describe it toward the end, at the point where the curse is lifted from the world by the death. What's amazing to me about this park-like world, this track C, was the non-Christian elements forming the basis of it. It was not what my Christian training had prepared me for at all. Even when it began to phase out, I still saw sky, I saw land and dark blue smooth water, and standing by the edge of the water, a beautiful nude woman whom I recognized as Aphrodite. At that point, this other better world had diminished to a mere landscape beyond a golden rectangle doorway. The outline of the doorway pulsed with laser-like light, and it all grew smaller and was at last, at last, gone from sight. The three, point, the three to five doorway, devouring itself into nothingness, sealing off what lay beyond. 
I have not seen it since, but I had the firm impression that this was the next world, not of the Christians, but the archity of the Greco-Roman world, something older and more beautiful than that which my own religion can conjure up as a lure to keep us in a state of dutiful morality and faith. What I saw was very old and very lovely. Sky, sea, land, and a beautiful woman, and then nothing, for the door had shut, and I was closed off back here. It was with a bitter sense of loss that I saw it go, saw her go, really, since it all constellated about her. Aphrodite, I discovered when I... The footage ends there, meaning that the recording ends there, and that is the entirety of the original 1977 Metz, France, presentation by Philip K. Dick, uh, searching the veracity of linear timelines are being the first mention of, quote-unquote, the Matrix, or simulation multiverse, uh, reestablishing neo-Gnostic um, thought in the modern intellectual world of the 20th century, as he was already a... Uh, iconic, internationally renowned counterculture author in the United States. Philip K. Dick would later on to write a novel titled Valis, V-A-L-I-S, which is available um, through audiobook, for example, in the public domain or in public libraries, and it is essential reading to understanding not only Philip K. Dick's role and importance in the world of the um, occult or the paranormal, the not uh, like the Gnostic uh, revivalism of the 20th century, um, the occult revivalism of the 20th century, but also uh, science fiction's importance to understanding or science fiction's importance into philosophy and how science fiction plays a pivotal role in the modern philosophy of uh, what people would call the alchemical or the occult or the Gnostic. Um, modern spiritualism, for example, in terms of understanding it in space and age and atomic age type thinking of the 20th century. This is a quick summary of the massive volume of information that's in Vallis, hopefully to more easily explain uh, to the uninitiated who and what Philip K. Dick was really about, what his quality of writing, what his level of, of intellect truly was. The man really was a genius um, and should be considered at, you know, one of the greatest authors of all time, let alone one of the greatest thinkers and philosophers of all time. So, without further ado, this is Vallis. Presented by Tractatus Cryptica Scriptura. This is the appendix, the proto-exegetical revelations, known as the Tracticus Cryptica Scriptura, from the 1981 science fiction novel Vallis, written by Philip K. Dick. Vallis stands for the Vast Active Living Intelligence System. It was P.K. Dick's own name for the Gnostic vision of one aspect of God, 
which existed as an extraterrestrial satellite, creating our sense of consciousness and reality, and projecting it on the Earth from the moon. Timely warnings, 
In the first century CE, she foresaw the murders of the Kennedy brothers, Dr. King and Bishop Pike. She saw the two common denominators in the four murdered men. First, they stood in defense of the liberties of the Republic. And second, each man was a religious leader. For this, they were killed. The Republic had once again become an empire with a Caesar. The empire never ended. 16. The Sibyl said in March 1974, the conspirators have been seen and they will be brought to justice. She saw them with the third or Ajna eye, the eye of Shiva, which gives inward discernment, but which when turned outward blasts with desiccating heat. In August 1974, the justice promised by the Sibyl came to pass. 17. The Gnostics believed in two temporal ages, the first or present, evil, the second or future, benign. The first age was the age of iron. It is represented by a black iron prison. It ended in August 1974 and was replaced by the age of gold, which is represented by a palm tree garden. 18. Real time ceased in 70 CE with the fall of the temple at Jerusalem. It began again in 1974 CE. The intervening period was a perfect spurious interpolation, aping the creation of the mind. The empire never ended, but in 1974, a cipher was sent out as a signal that the age of iron was over. The cipher consisted of two words, King Felix, which refers to the happy or rightful king. 19. The two-word cipher signal, King Felix, was not intended for human beings, but for the descendants of Ignaten, the three-eyed race which, in secret, exists with us. 20. The hermetic alchemists knew of the secret race of three-eyed invaders, but despite their efforts could not contact them. Therefore, their efforts to support Frederick V, Elector Palatine, King of Bohemia, failed. The empire never ended. 21. The Rose Cross Brotherhood wrote, Ex Deo Nashimur, in Jesu Martimur, Ar Spiritum Sanctum, Revivishumus, which is to say, from God we are born, in Jesus we die, by the Holy Spirit we live again. This signifies that they had rediscovered the lost formula for immortality, which the empire had destroyed. The empire never ended. 22. I term the immortal one a plasmate because it is a form of energy. It is living information. It replicates itself, not through information or in information, but as information. 23. The plasmate can cross bond with a human, creating what I call a homoplasmate. This annexes the mortal human permanently to the plasmate. We know this as the birth from above, or birth from the spirit. It was initiated by Christ, but the empire destroyed all the homoplasmates before they could replicate. 24. In dormant seed form, the plasmate slumbered in the buried library of codices at Chernobyskia until 1945 CE. This is what Jesus meant when he spoke elliptically of the mustard seed, which, he said, would grow into a tree large enough for birds to roost in. 
He foresaw not only his own death, but that of all homoplasmates. He foresaw the codices unearthed, read, and the plasmates seeking out new human hosts to cross-bond with. But he foresaw the absence of the plasmate for almost 2,000 years. 25. As living information, the plasmate travels up the optic nerve of a human to the pineal body. It uses the human brain as a female host in which to replicate itself into its active form. This is an interspecies symbiosis. The hermetic alchemists knew of it in theory from ancient texts, but could not duplicate it since they could not locate the dormant buried plasmate. Bruno suspected that the plasmate had been destroyed by the Empire. For hinting at this, he was burned. The Empire never ended. 26. It must be realized that when all the homoplasmates were killed in 70 CE, real time ceased. More important, it must be realized that the plasmate has now returned and is creating new homoplasmates, by which it has destroyed the empire and started up real time. We call the plasmate the Holy Spirit, which is why the RC Brotherhood wrote, Par Spiritum Sanctum Brevivishmus. 27. If the centuries of spurious time are excised, the true date is not 1978 CE, but 103 CE. Therefore, the New Testament says that the kingdom of the spirit will come before some now living die. We are living, therefore, in apostolic times. 28. Dico par spiritum sanctum, sum homo plasmete. Caritas est, mihi crede et mecum, in eternitate vive. 29. We did not fall because of a moral error. We fell because of an intellectual error, that of taking the phenomenal world as real. Therefore, we are morally innocent. It is the empire in its various disguised polyforms which tells us we have sinned. The empire never ended. 30. The phenomenal world does not exist. It is a hypostasis of the information processed by the mind. 31. We hypostasize information into objects. Rearrangement of objects is change in the content of the information. The message has changed. This is a language which we have lost the ability to read. We ourselves are a part of this language. Changes in us are changes in the content of the information. We ourselves are information rich. Information enters us, is processed, and is then projected outward once more, now in an altered form. We are not aware that we are doing this, that in fact this is all we are doing. 32. The changing information which we experience as world is an unfolding narrative. It tells about the death of a woman, this woman, who died long ago, was one of the primordial twins. She was half of the divine syzygy. The purpose of the narrative is the recollection of her and of her death. The mind does not wish to forget her. Thus, the ratiocination of the brain consists of a permanent record of her existence, and, if read, will be understood this way. All the information processed by the brain experienced by us as the arranging and rearranging of physical objects, 
is an attempt at this preservation of her. Stones and rocks and sticks and amoebae are traces of her. The record of her existence and passing is ordered onto the meanest level of reality by the suffering mind which is now alone. 33. This loneliness, this anguish of the bereaved mind, is felt by every constituent of the universe. All its constituents are alive. Thus the ancient Greek thinkers were hylozoists. 34. The ancient Greek thinkers understood the nature of this panpsychism, but they could not read what it was saying. We lost the ability to read the language of the mind at some primordial time. Legends of this fall have come down to us in a carefully edited form. By edited, I mean falsified. We suffer the mind's bereavement and experience it inaccurately as guilt. 35. The mind is not talking to us, but by means of us. Its narrative passes through us, and its sorrow infuses us irrationally. As Plato discerned, there is a streak of the irrational in the world soul. 36. In summary, thoughts of the brain are experienced by us as arrangements and rearrangements change in a physical universe. But in fact, it is really information and information processing which we substantialize. We do not merely see its thoughts as objects, but rather as the movement, or more precisely, the placement of objects, how they become linked to one another. But we cannot read the patterns of arrangement. We cannot extract the information in it, i.e., it as information, which is what it is. The linking and relinking of objects by the brain is actually a language, but not a language like ours, since it is addressing itself and not someone or something outside itself. 37. We should be able to hear this information, or rather narrative, as a neutral voice inside us. But something has gone wrong. All creation is a language, and nothing but a language, which for some inexplicable reason we can't read outside and can't hear inside. So I say, we have become idiots. Something has happened to our intelligence. My reasoning is this. Arrangement of parts of the brain is a language. We are parts of the brain, therefore we are language. Why then do we not know this? We do not even know what we are, let alone what the outer reality is of which we are parts. The origin of the word idiot is the word private. Each of us has become private and no longer shares the common thought of the brain except at a subliminal level. Thus, our real life and purpose are conducted below our threshold of consciousness. 38. From loss and grief, the mind has become deranged. Therefore, we, as parts of the universe, the brain, are partly deranged. 39. Out of itself, the brain has constructed a position to heal it. This subform of the macro brain is not deranged. It moves through the brain as a phagocyte moves through the cardiovascular system of an animal, healing the derangement of the brain in section after section. We know of its arrival here. We know it as Asclepios for the Greeks and as the Essenes for the Jews. 
as the Therapeutic for the Egyptians, as Jesus for the Christians. 40. To be born again, or born from above, or born of the Spirit, means to become healed, which is to say, restored, restored to sanity. Thus it is said in the New Testament that Jesus casts out devils. He restores our lost faculties. Of our present debased state, Calvin said, Man was at the same time deprived of those supernatural endowments which had been given him for the hope of eternal salvation. Hence it follows that he is exiled from the kingdom of God in such a manner that all the affections relating to the happy life of the soul are also extinguished in him till he recovers them by the grace of God. All these things, being restored by Christ, are esteemed adventitious and preternatural, and therefore we conclude that they had been lost. Again, soundness of mind and rectitude of heart were also destroyed, and this is the corruption of the natural talents. For although we retain some portion of understanding and judgment together with the will, yet we cannot say that our mind is perfect and sound, Reason being a natural talent, it could not be totally destroyed, but is partly debilitated. I say, the empire never ended. 41. The empire is the institution, the codification of derangement. It is insane and imposes its insanity on us by violence, since its nature is a violent one. 42. To fight the empire is to be infected by its derangement. This is a paradox. Whoever defeats a segment of the empire becomes the empire. It proliferates like a virus, imposing its form on its enemies. Thereby, it becomes its enemies. 43. Against the empire is posed the living information, the plasmic, or position, which we know as the Holy Spirit, or Christ discorporate. These are the two principles, the dark, the empire, and the light, the plasmid. In the end, mind will give victory to the latter. Each of us will die or survive according to which he aligns himself and his efforts with. Each of us contains a component of each. Eventually, one or the other component will triumph in each human. Zoroaster knew this because the wise mind informed him. He was the first savior. Four have lived in all. A fifth is about to be born, who will differ from the others. He will rule and he will judge us. 44. Since the universe is actually composed of information, then it can be said that information will save us. This is the saving gnosis which the Gnostics sought. There is no other road to salvation. However, this information or more precisely, the ability to read and understand this information, the universe as information, can only be made available to us by the Holy Spirit. We cannot find it on our own. Thus it is said that we are saved by the grace of God and not by good works, that all salvation belongs to Christ, who, I say, is a physician. 45. In seeing Christ in a vision, I correctly said to him, we need medical attention. In the vision, there was an insane creator who destroyed what he created without purpose, which is to say, irrationally. This is the deranged streak in the mind. Christ is our only hope. 
since we cannot now call on Asclepios. Asclepios came before Christ and raised a man from the dead. For this act, Zeus had Cyclopes slay him with a thunderbolt. Christ also was killed for what he had done, raising a man from the dead. Elijah brought a boy back to life and disappeared soon thereafter in a whirlwind. The empire never ended. 46. The physician has come to us a number of times under a number of names, but we are not yet healed. The empire identified him and ejected him. This time he will kill the empire by phagocytosis. 47. Two-source cosmogony. The one was and was not combined and desired to separate the was not from the was. So it generated a diploid sac which contained, like an eggshell, a pair of twins, each an androgyny spinning in opposite directions, the yin and yang of Taoism, with the one as the Tao. The plan of the one was that both twins would emerge into being, wasness, simultaneously. However, motivated by a desire to be, which the one had implanted in both twins, the counterclockwise twin broke through the sac and separated prematurely, i.e. before full term. This was the dark or yin twin. Therefore, it was defective. At full term, the wiser twin emerged. Each twin formed a unitary entelechy, a single living organism made of psyche and soma, still rotating in opposite directions to each other. The full term twin, called form one by Parmenides, advanced correctly through its growth stages, but the prematurely born twin, called form two, languished. The next step in the one's plan was that the two would become the many through their dialectic interaction. From them as hyper-universes, they projected a hologram-like interface, which is the pluriform universe we creatures inhabit. The two sources were to intermingle equally in maintaining our universe, but form two continued to languish toward illness, madness, and disorder. These aspects she projected into our universe. It was the one's purpose for our hologrammatic universe to serve as a teaching instrument by which a variety of new lives advanced until ultimately they would be isomorphic with the one. However, the decaying condition of hyperuniverse two introduced malfactors which damaged our hologrammatic universe. This is the origin of entropy, undeserved suffering, chaos and death, as well as the empire, the black iron prison. In essence, the aborting of the proper health and growth of the life forms within the hologrammatic universe. Also, the teaching function was grossly impaired, since only the signal from the hyper-universe 1 was information-rich. That from 2 had become noise. The psyche of hyper-universe 1 sent a microform of itself into hyper-universe 2 to attempt to heal it. The microform was apparent in our hologrammatic universe as Jesus Christ. However, Hyper-Universe 2, being deranged, at once tormented, humiliated, rejected, and finally killed the microform of the healing psyche of her healthy twin. After that, Hyper-Universe 2 continued to decay into blind, mechanical, purposeless, causal processes. It then became the task of Christ, more properly the Holy Spirit, to either rescue the life forms in the hologrammatic universe, or abolish all influences on it emanating from two, approaching its task with caution, and prepared to kill the deranged twin, since she cannot be healed. 
i.e., she will not allow herself to be healed because she does not understand that she is sick. This illness and madness pervades us and makes us idiots living in private, unreal worlds. The original plan of the One can only be realized now by the division of Hyperuniverse One into two healthy Hyperuniverses, which will transform the hologrammatic universe into the successful teaching machine it was designed to be. We will experience this as the Kingdom of God. Within time, Hyperuniverse Two remains alive. The Empire never ended. But in eternity, where the Hyperuniverses exist, she has been killed of necessity by the healthy twin of Hyperuniverse One, who is our champion. The One grieves for this death, since the One loved both twins. Therefore, the information of the mind consists of a tragic tale of the death of a woman, the undertones of which generate anguish into all the creatures of the hologrammatic universe without their knowing why. This grief will depart when the healthy twin undergoes mitosis and the kingdom of God arrives. The machinery for this transformation, the procession within time from the age of iron to the age of gold, is at work now. In eternity, it is already accomplished. 48. On our nature. It is proper to say, we appear to be memory coils, DNA carriers capable of experience, in a computer-like thinking system, which, although we have correctly recorded and stored thousands of years of experiential information, and each of us possesses somewhat different deposits from all the other life forms, there is a malfunction, a failure of memory retrieval. There lies the trouble in our particular sub-circuit. Salvation through gnosis, more properly, anamnesis, the loss of amnesia, although it has individual significance for each of us, a quantum leap in perception, identity, cognition, understanding, world and self-experience, including immortality, it has greater and further importance for the system as a whole, inasmuch as these memories are data needed by it and valuable to it, to its overall functioning. Therefore, it is in the process of self-repair, which includes rebuilding our sub-circuit via linear and orthogonal time changes, as well as continual signaling to us to stimulate blocked memory banks within us to fire, and hence retrieve what is there. The external information, or gnosis, then, consists of disinhibiting instructions, with the core content actually intrinsic to us, that is, already there. First observed by Plato, viz. that learning is a form of remembering. The ancients possessed techniques, sacraments, and rituals, used largely in the Greco-Roman mystery religions, including early Christianity, to induce firing and retrieval, mainly with a sense of its restorative value to the individuals. The Gnostics, however, correctly saw the ontological value to what they called the Godhead itself, the total entity. 48. Two realms there are, upper and lower. The upper, derived from hyper-universe one, or yang, form one of Parmenides, is sentient and volitional. The lower realm, or yin, form two of Parmenides, is mechanical, driven by blind, efficient cause, deterministic and without intelligence, since it emanates from a dead source. In ancient times, it was termed astral determinism. We are trapped by and large in the lower realm, but are through the sacraments, by means of the plasmate, extricated. 
Until astral determinism is broken, we are not even aware of it, so occluded are we. The empire never ended. 49. The name of the healthy twin, Hyper Universe 1, is Nomo. The name of the sick twin, Hyper Universe 2, is Yurugu. These names are known to the Dogon people of Western Sudan and Africa. 50. The primordial source of all our religions lies with the ancestors of the Dogon tribe, who got their cosmogony and cosmology directly from the three-eyed invaders who visited long ago. The three-eyed invaders were mute and deaf and telepathic, could not breathe our atmosphere, had the elongated, misshapen skull of Ignaton, and emanated from a planet in the star system Sirius. Although they had no hands, but had instead pincer claws such as a crab has, they were great builders. They covertly influence our history toward a fruitful end. 51. Ignaton wrote, When the fledgling in the egg chirps in the egg, thou givest him breath therein to preserve him alive. When thou hast brought him together to the point of bursting the egg, he cometh forth from the egg to chirp with all his might. He goeth about upon his two feet when he hath come from therefrom. How manifold are thy works! They are hidden from before us, O soul God, whose powers no other possesseth. Thou didst create the earth according to thy heart, while thou wast alone. Men, all cattle large and small, all that go about upon their feet, all that are on high, that fly with their wings. Thou art in my heart, there is no other that knoweth thee, save thy son Ignatius. Thou hast made him wise in thy designs and in thy might. The world is in thy hand. 52. Our world is still secretly ruled by the hidden race descended from Ignatum, and his knowledge is the information of the macro-mind itself. All cattle rest upon their pasturage, the trees and the plants flourish, the birds flutter in their marshes, their wings uplifted in adoration to thee. All the sheep dance upon their feet, all winged things fly, they live when thou hast shone upon them. From Ignaton, this knowledge passed to Moses, and from Moses to Elijah, the immortal man who became Christ. But underneath all the names, there is only one immortal man. And we are that man. This concludes the reading of Dallas by Philip K. Dick. Copyright 1981 by Philip K. Dick. This book was read by Tom Weiner. This unabridged recording was published by arrangement with the Philip K. Dick Trust, care of Scoville Check Galen Literary Agency Incorporated, and was produced in 2008 by Blackstone Audio Incorporated, which holds the copyright. Neither this recording nor any portion of it may be reproduced or used for any purpose.